Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to the arcade. We are your video game podcast here, back with you for the first time in the month of September. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on this fine audio program. So glad you can join us once again. As I said, our first time being here with you in the month of September. We were away last week as it was Labor Day long weekend, so we took some rest from our labors to uh, enjoy uh, enjoy ourselves, enjoy our time, enjoy the time of others, and uh, just relax. And we hope you relax as well, and now we're just all getting back fully in the swing of things, aren't we? Yes, we sure are, and uh, as you say, we... I am the other voice on this program, as I always am. This week I am Dennis, the man who isn't against the idea of figuring out how to cash in on one of the stupid financial trends happening at the moment. Uh, you have your choice. There's uh, quite a few going on at this uh, current point in our uh, our history, our civilization, yeah, our I, time. I think maybe the most notable one being the NFTs at the moment. Yeah, that uh, we'll talk more about uh, in a bit as we have some uh, ludicrous lead-offs related to those. Surprise, surprise. Uh, NFTs continue to be a thing, and NFTs continue just to baffle you and I, and perhaps anyone would, anyone with any sort of good sense about themselves. Yeah, I mean, I don't fully understand what they are, but they seem to be basically just digital pieces of media or whatnot that, you know, you essentially can just prove the digital ownership of. So if you're an artist or whatever, if who you're, you know, selling art, you can actually guarantee that the person who bought it from you has a copy of it that they can verify is the copy they bought off of you. Rather, like, which makes sense in terms of, like, any other art, Mm -hmm. but it's just digital art and things like that in particular are very kind of tricky because the way digital files work is you can just literally make a copy like, oh, I like that JPEG on your computer. Can you email me a copy? Yes, I can. Now you have the same thing and you've paid zero dollars for it (laughs) because that's how digital files work. It's Mm -hmm. just literally a collection of binary information, you know. (laughs) <laughs> just in a file. So that's all it is. So fine. I, I kind of get that, but <laughs> I guess it goes back to the thing of like, yes, but why in terms of some of the prices we've seen for what we've seen? And frankly, like from some of the things I've seen, I'm like, I could have done that. Any of my <laughs> friends could have done that. Why are we the ones getting rich <laughs> off of this garbage? How do we, <laughs> it's like, how can we start getting in on this, then, if that's the case? It seems like uh, there isn't uh, any sort of barrier to entry. Yeah. There isn't any sort of minimum standard at play here. No. It can be whatever piece of, of random crap you want to throw up as an NFT can be an NFT and go from there. And then step two is missing. Step three, profit. Yeah, because... It seems like no matter how insignificant or stupid there is a thing of an NFT for, someone will buy it. Which is crazy. Yeah. I I don't know who is buying these various NFTs. Like, Uh, has it even been proven that there's a resale value for any of this stuff yet? Like, it seems like people are just buying these things for investment-type purposes. But who the hell is going to rebuy some of these insane things? Like I've seen crazily offensive pieces of art go up for bananas prices and sell. Like I'm not going to even describe some of the things I've seen. Like you've linked me to a couple of things as well. Like, uh, 
What? That's a thing that sold for how much? What? Oh, interesting. Funny to look at. Disturbing to think of how much it sold for. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. It's like, huh. And here we find ourselves in September. It's really only been the last six, eight months that NFTs have really taken off and gained mainstream attention and also uh, seen some just absolute crazy bananas, insane evaluations uh, for things being sold at auction, through whatever marketplace, and still, you and I don't understand them. No. I, I just say we understand them even less as time is going on. Yeah. Because they're not a flash in the pan. They're persisting still into now the, I think, eighth month of us talking about them on this program. Yeah. So they're not an overnight thing. They're not a flash in the pan. They have some level of staying power. So what the hell are they? Are they a bubble? Is this a bubble of NFTs? As we've seen some sort of like crazy financial bubbles happen in the past 10, 15, 20 years, like real estate bubbles. Um, there were coin bubbles in the 80s. Yeah. Like junk bonds uh, as well, I think, in the 80s. Yeah, the, the housing market in many ways, the subprime mortgage is a bubble. Yes. Like that whole thing. 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, and arguably, you know, we won't get into it, but there's – a whole bunch of signs that point to the crazy expensive video game market right now being a bubble as well. Yes, uh, which if you uh, if you look on YouTube, there's a it's a long watch. It's a, an almost an hour long video of uh, someone doing a fairly in depth inv- investigation as to what actually is going on and what is motivating these ridiculous prices that uh, video games are apparently being sold for at auction. Yes. Apparently being sold. Apparently being yeah, sold. Yeah, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. But yeah, it's, uh, in case you're wondering, I believe the YouTuber's name was Carl Jobst. And, um, yeah, it's basically has the title of something along the lines of exposing this big massive scam, fraud, video game industry is a bubble, blah, 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 something like that. Yeah. You'll, you'll find it. It's pretty easy to find on YouTube. But, um, yeah, we're not talking about that specifically, but no. yeah, just bubbles in general. I don't know. <laughs> it seems like there's avenues for uh, for people to uh, to make their money, get in, get out, and uh, uh, make a few dollars in the process. So why aren't we? That's a good question. Maybe we should figure this out. I I'm kind of wondering and kind of thinking we should because there's money to be made. It's apparent and obvious. There's money to be made. Yeah, and who wants to work forever? I sure don't. I don't either. <laughs> I'm tired of it now. Same. I've still got like another thirty, forty years ahead of me. I don't want that. No, neither do I. I want. I want to. I want to engage in some of that uh, that fire mentality. Fixed income, retire early. Yep. I'm or, down. I thought it was financial independence retire early. I've heard it both. Yeah. Well, they mean the same thing. Get a bunch of money now, put it in some sort of like way that you can, you know, live off of, you know. Dividends. Dividends, investments, whatever else that will give you some sort of consistent yearly return. And then you just live off of that as, you know, instead of getting a salary. Yeah. It sounds a lot more appealing than, you know, having to work for that money. I'm down. But the only kind of crap thing about that is that like... <laughs> Usually what you see happen when these people, when you see the people talking about how they've done it, they're always like, oh, I've downgraded everything to a tiny house and, you know, and I do this and that, or I live in a trailer and I do this, like, (laughs) instead of eating out or I I eat at this whatever grocery store and I only buy discount bread and this and that, it's like, yeah, but you're not really living very well. (laughs) So, mm, 
So get yourself a a, a decent enough uh, stockpile of money now, uh, so that you can live off a a fairly good nest egg that it pays you annually. Yeah. Like, don't try and live off like twenty, thirty grand a year. That's not going to do anything for no. you. No, no, exactly. Yeah, you still want to live like off like you know a hundred, two hundred grand a year. <laughs> so well, you need a bigger nest egg. Well, I mean. <laughs> Shooting a little bit high for the moon there, my friend, but, uh. Even if I fall, I'm still amongst the stars. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, in, in all seriousness, though, if you have any ideas for us to get rich quick off of NFTs, please send us an email, info at the arcade show dot com, or actually more reasonably, just send us a message on social media. We'll find it better there. Exactly. You know, like on Twitter, at the arcade show, same thing with Facebook. That's, that's pretty much it. Yep. Uh, and uh, let us know your thoughts. How can the arcade and uh, Dennis and I uh, get in on that sweet, sweet and very lucrative NFT action? Yes. Uh, as we have seen and we'll now talk about the ludicrous leadoffs. As I said, there's uh, uh, some NFT stories to talk about. Always some NFT stories to talk about because the world continues to go to hell in a handbasket. Uh, NFTs being a good example of that. And the fact that... Uh, we've seen artists uh, put their works up and fetch crazy amounts of money, but sometimes you don't even have to actually be the artist behind the NFT to make out with a fair chunk of change in the sale uh, or sale of an NFT. As one purchaser found out in the, back in the month of August when they bought what they thought was an official Bansky or, or Banksy, Banksy, me, Banksy. Uh, Thought they bought what they thought was an official Banksy NFT. Turns out they were wrong, uh, but still ended up paying over three hundred forty thousand U.S. dollars for this not official Banksy NFT. Yeah. So basically, what happened was uh, last month, an anonymous investor spent three hundred forty thousand dollars USD on an NFT directly from Banksy's website. Um, and then found out it was a fake. And the way that they found out it was a fake, uh, well, was be, well, I can just kind of go through like the story here from, uh, the, it was alerted to us by Shoshana Wodinski on, uh, gizmodo.com. She said here, uh, the forged piece of digital art popped up on Banksy's official site on the morning of Tuesday, August 31st, first under the now deleted URL, banksy.co.uk slash nft.html. The only thing on the page was a JPEG of what was presumably Banksy's take on the $1 billion CryptoPunk hype train, featuring the artist's usual kind of social commentary, this time about the awful carbon footprint that NFT artwork leaves behind. The title, in case you were wondering, was Great Redistribution of the Climate Change Disaster. Uh... And then the article goes on to say, an image of said disaster was listed on the OpenSea NFT market earlier today by an artist going by Gakman, which matches a pseudonym Banksy had used in the past. In other words, it seemed legit or about as legit as an NFT artwork can be anyway. So people started bidding. The winner of the auctioned artwork ended up being an anonymous crypto art collector named Pranksy, who spent a whopping 100 Ethereum which is worth a little over 340,000 US dollars on the work, according to blockchain records. And then things started getting weird after that point when the page on Banksy's website was quietly taken down with no word about how that page appeared on the site in the first place. 
Talking with the BBC about the incident, the anonymous buyer said that he suspected Banksy's site was hacked and some random scam artist was actually the one who put up the seemingly legitimate webpage. And in a statement sent to the BBC, Banksy's team told the outlet that, quote, any Banksy NFT auctions are not affiliated with the artist in any shape or form. We've also reached out to Pest Control, the agency that acts as Banksy's public mouthpiece for the press about any updates, and I'm, they didn't get anything yet, but, uh, yeah, at least thus far though, this whole thing, scam or not, uh, seems to have an ap- a happy ending as Gackman has apparently refunded the 100 Ethereum back into Pranksy's account just hours after the auction on his faked price piece was closed. Uh, the buyer confirmed to Motherboard that he's planning on keeping the artwork, at least for right now. Before eventually turning around and putting it back up for sale as something else. Yeah, so this whole debacle itself just... Given that I know a little bit of the history of like some of the crazy things Banksy's done as art, the the whole debacle itself almost feels like a Banksy piece of art, mm. which is very interesting. Like there was like if you recall at one point there was that photo. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was it was some piece of like physical art that went up for sale, and it went up for sale, ended up selling for like a million British pounds. Then as the sale was finalized, it shredded itself. All like, right. It was it was like a framed piece of art, and I guess you know no one really looked too deep into what was in the frame or anything. But there was a little shredder built into the frame, and I don't know if it was switched off with a remote trigger or what. Must have been because it was timed perfectly. But as the sale was finalized, it, it shredded itself, and then there was like calamity. People were like, "Oh my god, what the hell?" Ah. So that's the type of spectacle I'm used to from Banksy, like and. The whole thing of like, is Banksy one person or is Banksy a collective? A lot of people have suspected Banksy's actually a collective of people, which also makes sense. So maybe this is all real. Maybe this is like, this does, there's something about it where it's like, yeah, there's suspicions that Banksy's site was hacked. Fine. But like, doesn't this also seem a little bit too perfect? A little bit. I can see it. Uh, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, like maybe this was like if the whole point was just to kind of show how NFTs are basically frivolous nonsense that are just kind of causing a huge environmental, having a big bad environmental impact. Maybe this is just a way of getting people to think, hey, maybe these things, these funny fake, you know, this funny fake money generating fake not real thing isn't really a thing? Like, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I can see the statement uh, uh, that's being laid down. I mean, the the elements are lined up perfectly for this to be someone posing as uh, uh, as Banksy to try and confuse and, uh, uh, you know, l- you know, lead public down, lead the public down one train of thinking. But I can also easily see the uh, elements being lined up for this to be a, an inside job, if you will. Yeah. Uh, perhaps, uh, the, the anonymous purchaser, uh, or somewhat anonymous purchaser was also in on it. Yeah. I mean, they were going by the name Pranksy, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. So it's a thing that happened. Uh, make of it what you will. 
But another thing that happened that uh, apparently is not any sort of prank put on by Banksy, that is not any sort of statement, is one of the more disturbing uh, NFT purchases we've seen recently. Uh, you'll recall, I think on our last episode, how we spoke of the fact that there was an artist selling NFT rocks, essentially pet rocks, but NFTs, digital art, almost look like word art or clip art versions of rocks. Yep. Just different shades, and they were being sold as NFTs for stupid prices. So this uh, past week at the auction house that is Sotheby's, they announced that they had sold a collection of 101 computer-generated NFT apes, and they managed to sell this collective of 101 computer-generated NFT apes for the paltry sum of 24.4 million U.S. dollars. Yeah, we're saying paltry because it's not the most expensive uh, NFT thing sold on the market, which actually went to uh, Beeple's – well, I don't, I don't know exactly. It was I think it was a collection of things by a person or group of people named Beeple. Yeah, it was uh, kind of like a, an image a day or an image a week thing, just all compiled into one single uh, digital asset, and then that was sold off as an NFT yeah. through Christie's Auction House for $69.3 million U.S. dollars. Yeah, so that was the most expensive, but yeah, this... Uh, it's still a princely sum, this Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, $24 million, that's... Uh, yeah, so these... when You were probably curious, like me, like, what exactly do you mean, computer-generated apes? So these apes are known as the Board Ape Yacht Club, which is a collection of 10,000 unique images, including, well, uh, well, bored apes, bored apes in party hats, bored apes smoking cigarettes, bored apes wearing 3D glasses, you name it. Uh, they were created by a group called Yuga Labs, who is a collective that rolled out the ape collection earlier this year, who are explaining that each ape is unique and programmatically generated from over 170 possible traits, including their clothing, headgear, and board expressions. And as the club's website states, all apes are dope, but some are rarer than others. So, (laughs) as a software developer, this makes me mad, because I know how easy it is to do something like this. I mean, I at one point, one of the apps I put together was something like this, where it was basically just you ended up with, like, essentially, if you've used Photoshop before, you know, the concept of layers, mm-hmm. where you had, like, you basically just would, like, layer on, like, this layer is this part of the computer, like, the, this layer is this, like, so in the court, in the case of these apes, they probably had a layer for, you know, the torso, they probably had a layer for the arms, they probably had a layer for the legs, they probably had a layer for the head. Layer for the hat. A layer for the hat, a layer for any, you know, arm accoutrements, leg accoutrements, whatever else. And then it's just literally just a matter of like, okay, build out all unique combinations of all the layers together. Like, of, of you know, when you have all of each of the required layers, it's usually one of each required layer. And there's only so many combinations you can have, and I guess in their case it turned out to be 10,000. And it's usually a trivial thing of just going, you know, building a little script to say, okay, from this assets directory, put all these images together in this way, like composite them in this way, and then, you know, put them in this output directory, and then done. Like, that's it. Like, the all the work probably went into building, you know, their however many unique pieces of assets, like maybe there's a hundred unique assets or something, Mm -hmm. but 
to build your 10,000, you, like, final combinations or whatever. That, that's the trivial part. Like, it's frustrating that it's like, oh, there's rarity because look at all the different combinations we made. It's like, you didn't make them. A script made them. You made the parts that go, like, you made the parts that layered on top of each other. Which was fine, I guess, but like, really? So yeah, this, uh, 24.4 million. For, for a, I mean, 10,000 apes uh, were included in this, so it's not like you're just getting one single prized image of an ape. Sure. But yeah. So this is, uh, where we're at now. Apparently this is a, these apes are a big thing. Uh, this is the first I'd ever come into contact with them in my travels across the internet. Uh, they apparently have been, uh, uh, doing various, uh, uh, board ape versions or, or cross-branded promotions with, uh, NBA and NFL players, YouTube stars, uh, as well as Jermaine Dupree. Uh, the board ape yacht club has also apparently, uh, snagged a major brand collaboration with Arizona iced tea. Uh, this according to Shoshana Wudinski of Gizmodo. Uh, so yes, apparently the, the Board Ape Yacht Club is a thing. Some sort of, uh, digital art cultural movement. Yeah, I'm looking at their website currently and, uh, I, it looks like it's just what I suspected. Which, you know, it, it's a good idea, I think, because, you know, it, it looks like it's a bunch of artists who did a cool idea. And like, you know, they, they made this kind of interesting modular art project. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that, you know, they're able to kind of cash in on that way. But it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Though it is interesting. They say on their website, fair distribution, uh, they say bonding curves are a Ponzi and they say there's no bonding curves here. Buying a board ape costs, uh, costs 0.08 Ethereum. There are no price tiers. BYAC membership costs the same for everyone. Note, 30 apes are being withheld from the sale. These will be used for giveaways, puzzle rewards, and the creator's BYAC memberships. So you can go onto OpenSea and buy a ape, but for 0.08 uh, Ethereum. Yeah. But a lot of these are actually like, there, there's bids on all of them. So that might have actually just been like the starting price, but yeah, they're, uh, like they're, they're funny looking apes, a lot of them, but they're all very similar as well. So yeah, that's, uh, if that's a thing that you're interested in, oh man, this one's 35 Ethereum. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kind of scrolling up there. Oh yeah, they're, well actually I'm going, they, they get higher the lower I scroll. Interesting. Well, this one's 40. Okay, so, uh, Huh. Getting more expensive. Yeah. Great. So, uh. So do these look like apes that would justify a, a 30, 35, 40 Ethereum price point? Um, and the answer quite simply is no. Uh, in my humble opinion, no. No, I mean, they all look very similar. They kind of remind me as being something from the art style of the band Gorillas. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's part of the joke, like, I don't know. Is there a joke? I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but uh is the joke on us for talking about this? Is the joke on someone else for for paying 24.4 million US dollars for a group of 10,000 apes of these bored ape NFTs? 
Yeah, I don't know. Are, are the, the creators and collaborators behind the, uh, Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, Board Ape Yacht Club, excuse me, uh, Yuga Labs, are they laughing all the way to the bank? I mean, hopefully. Are they going to experience that fire lifestyle now? <laughs> well, I mean, I have nothing but high hopes for them, but, uh, yeah. Anyway. So. $24.4 million US dollars for apes. Yeah. And they look to be just headshots. Yeah. They're, they're just headshots. Like, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah, it, it's even more simple than I thought it was. I mean, it's basically like you have a different expression, a different mouth, a different piece of like headgear, and then a different shirt and a different hat. And a different color background. A different color background. So that's the combinations you can have. So it's, yeah. <laughs> All right then. Yeah, great. So remember that brief fleeting moment in your life when you thought you understood the world? It's gone. Yeah. It's gone and you don't even know when it went away. You don't know when it changed, but it's gone. Don't worry. We're all in the same boat. Yeah. It's gone and it's never coming back either. Yeah. Once that, uh, that, uh, proverbial genie is out of the bottle of, uh, understanding, uh, it's flown the coop. It's gone and, uh, you can't put it back in. No, no, that, you can't. That's just how these things go. But hey, speaking of things that make stupid amounts of money that, uh, perhaps aren't really tangible, let's talk, talk about Star Citizen for a moment. You know, that game that is, uh, more just an experiment in crowdfunding to see how much Cloud Imperium games can actually raise from people without releasing a tangible product? Yeah. That perhaps Cloud Imperium Games is having uh, their laugh at people's expense? Yeah, because, you know, they've... <laughs> if if you haven't been following along over the last decade or so, they... God, it, it probably has been that long, hasn't I, it? I think it might even be a little bit more than that. So, oh, dark Jesus. <clears throat> yes, they they initially were a successful Kickstarter campaign where I think they raised something like what, like $10 million on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And then after the fact, they kept their donations open through just regular PayPal type channels where you, if you really supported this and you wanted to sort of get in on it, but you missed the initial boat, you could continue to put money towards them and whatever means. And then, you know, one thing led to another. Eventually, you know, they, they had a couple of rounds of venture capitalist funding happening or venture capital funding happening. And today, they've ended up raising, as a company so far, about $500 million in total, from what I understand, from what I can piece together between all of the crowdfunding and the venture capital. Um, I don't know if it was like Series A, B, whatever you want to call it, funding, but that type of funding, not counting, I think, their in-app purchases that they've had, but... Yeah, they've they've been making bank, and it's not even a game that's been released. No, it hasn't. It's uh, still in alpha. Yeah, not even beta. I think I don't even think it's in beta. It is still in development. Yeah, it seems like they uh, they are still basically laying down the tracks as they're building the trains to to basically make the the rail lines uh, happen. Yeah. Is a, is a, you know, one way to, to put it. So if you're not entirely clear on what Star Citizen is supposed to even be, uh, the idea behind it uh, from Cloud Imperium Games is that it's basically just a giant space RPG. Yeah. Or space MMO, I should say. Yeah, space MMO. 
I think at some point they had an idea for a, a single player campaign, but I don't know if that's what ended up spinning off into Squadron 42 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, even the single player campaign that they came up with and showed off a couple of years ago, I think it was called Squadron 42, uh, and had a whole bunch of actually uh, recognizable name voice actors participate yeah. in it. Wasn't Mark Hamill one of them? Yep. Yeah. Sure was. And still, that has, that single player component has not yet come to fruition in any shape or form. No, no, it hasn't. So all that people have left, are left with as, uh, they are currently supporting this game is flying around in space with, uh, JPEG ships. <laughs> yes. Well, if not JPEG ships, then at the very least, like, let's just, let's give them the benefit of the, of the doubt and then say they are, 3D models. Okay, fine. But there's no real functional difference between any of them. Like, you may have, like, a badass-looking destroyer battlecruiser type ship or whatever, and you might have, like, you know, a little scrappy Millennium Falcon type ship, but I don't know if there's any in-game difference between them. I don't know if they have, if they've even got that far. Like, I mean, granted, I'm speaking from a great place of ignorance here because I've been looking at this game sort of like, like with a little bit of like a sneer because it hasn't come out yet. It's been in beta or it's been in development for like a decade. So like it's, it weirdly enough has a, what appears to be a dedicated community of people who like to support it and play it and stuff. But I've also seen just as many people on, you know, Reddit and what else who are just kind of like, yeah, it's not really a game. It's not like there's not really a lot there to it, which is, you know, buyer beware. And yet, for some reason, these concept chips that I'm talking about that are basically just 3D models that effectively have no difference between them are still being sold in game for bananas amounts of money? Tens of thousands of dollars at points, and uh, that really seems to be the, uh, at least from an outside perspective, the name of the game for Cloud Imperium here is just to keep cranking, coming up with some of these ships and sell people oh, these ships. Right, but then there, there's the other issue here, as, as you're mentioning when you're talking about JPEGs, there's this other, right, there's the second layer, I'd forgot, they do sell these concept ships which don't even, you don't even get to see them in game. But they're concept ships because that you will get when they do get made into 3D models. That again, I don't know if have any actual bearing over what they do. But these concept ships are literally just like as ephemeral as NFTs, it seems. <laughs> possibly. And possibly Cloud Imperium has been uh, kind of ahead of the game when it comes to the NFT curve, but we'll speak about those concept ships for a minute here, because that's uh, where our second ludicrous lead-off here, or, I guess, n- number two, if you consider the NFTs being 1A, 1B, this is ludicrous lead-off number two, right proper, uh, takes us to the UK, where the Ad Standards Authority apparently has told uh, Cloud Imperium Games, the developer of Star Citizen, that it needs to make clear that uh, their for-sale, quote-unquote, concept ships are actually not yet available in the game. And this all stems from a complaint that was made with the Ad Standards Authority uh, brought against Cloud Imperium Games by a user on Reddit who goes by the handle of Matsy, who made the complaint after being, uh, quote, fed up of CIG and the constant lies, end quote. 
So the complaint was sparked by a marketing email that was sent out in July of this past summer to subscribers that claimed, quote, last chance to grab the Gactic, Gatak Raelian, end quote. And, quote, don't miss your chance to pledge for the Gatak Manufacturer Raelian. Uh, the alien concept ship will be leaving the pledge store on Monday, end quote. However, the email that was sent out by Cloud Imperium Games did not mention that this ship, the Gatak Raelian, actually did not exist yet in the game. And Cloud Imperium Games sells what they call concept ships, which are in development, but not available to either view or pilot in the space MMO. Right, right. So I was mistaken when I was talking about that. My apologies. Fair but, enough. But yes, that's... You're literally just spending money on a concept at that point. But the issue is that it's not clear that you are spending money on a concept. That's true. So the way it was worded, especially in that uh, that marketing email sent out to subscribers, made it sound like, yes, this is your last, last chance to get the ship before it goes away, and then you won't be able to uh, get it in the game. However, as things currently stand... You're not even able, not even able to get it in the game. Yeah, it's your last chance to get it before it ends up as a thing you can still get in the game. Maybe this is like, maybe you're getting like introductory prices or maybe you're getting early bird prices by doing it this way. But that's what, like, that's how it should have been worded. Like, hey, the early bird prices are closing because we're not going to be offering this anymore until it's actually in game, at which point the price will go up. And by the way, the prices of the actual ships you buy in game are bananas expensive. Oh yeah. Like last I checked, I haven't looked at their website in a couple of years at this point, but I, if I'm not mistaken, the average ship looked like it was like $6,000 or something. Yeah. You're into the thousands of dollars for these ships. Some upwards of uh, ten thousand, if not four. I saw. I did see ships one time for like forty thousand dollars. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> like, like, what are they? What, what, what do you get out of that? <laughs> that is a good question. Like, I like video games as much as the next person, but what are you getting for that amount of money? Is the game worth $40,000 plus to you to just, like, to see come to fruition? Like, you're not, buying a ship doesn't give you a stake in the company or anything either. It's not like you're actually, like, one of those venture capitalists who have, you know, put their, you know, their angel investment money towards your, like, this company. You're just some person who's bought some crap from some CD organization is all it is. There was that whole thing about that guy who wanted some of his money back eventually as well a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember. I think he may have gotten some. Uh, it, there were lawsuits filed. I think he may eventually have gotten some, uh, but I don't think he got all of it. No, and it was all because of, like, basically he was doing it under the pretense that, like, well, game must be released soon. When it gets released, you know, I want to have better gear than people, and what better way to do this than, you know, get in on this early bird style ground floor or whatever that I'm getting in here, not realizing that, hey, <laughs> everyone who's involved in this has been part of that same scam for the last eight years. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but yeah. 
So the Ad Standards Authority in the UK did take up this complaint. They did look into it and they did find that uh, the fact that these ships were concept ships was not made as clear as it could have been. Uh, and so they gave a bit of a reprimand. I mean, it wasn't any sort of financial penalty or anything like that. Uh, but they did give a bit of a, a reprimand, a rap on the knuckles, if you will to Cloud Imperium, and now Star Citizen marketing emails have to include a disclaimer warning potential customers about the true nature of concept ships. Uh, the latest email, according to Eurogamer, says of the ships being offered, quote, the Crusader Ares, A2 Hercules, Genesis Starliner, are being offered here as a limited vehicle concept pledge. This means that the vehicle is in development but is not yet ready to display in your hangar or fly in Star Citizen. It will be available as playable content in a later patch. In the future, the vehicle price may increase and lifetime insurance or any extras may not be available, end quote. The disclaimer does go on to note that if you buy the concept ship, uh, concept ship now, you'll get a, quote, loaner vehicle for, end quote, for use in the game until the concept ship actually comes out. This loaner vehicle is a, quote, currently playable vehicle of similar approximate size and or function to the concept ship pledged, end quote. So you get something close, but it's not the thing you pledged for. But hey. Yeah. So you get a rental car <laughs> until your car is ready. Yeah, until, you know, that, you know, hot new 2022 Ferrari um concept car that you ordered or the Audi concept car, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, Alfa Romeo concept car that you ordered comes through. Well, we, we've got a, you know, we've got a, uh, a Chevy Spark just in back there that you can drive around for the next year. Yeah. Maybe we're more. actually not sure when your uh, car is going to be ready or you'll be able to drive it or put it in your garage, but, uh, yeah, we, we know you spent a loaner car. We know you spent 50 grand on a supercar, but here's your, uh, Here's your subcompact for the year that, you know, you get to drive around until the supercar comes in. It's like, uh, no? Really? Uh, the, the, the disclaimer further adds, quote, this is a long ass disclaimer, uh, but it goes on to say, quote, uh, this is Cloud Imperium Games in the marketing email uh, and their disclaimer. It says, quote, We offer pledge ships to help fund Star Citizen's development. The funding received from vehicles such as this allows us to include deeper features in the Star Citizen world. These vehicles will be available for in-game credits and or will be otherwise earnable through play in the final universe. They are not required to start or succeed at the game. End quote. So, I feel like that last paragraph is a crock of shit. Yeah. It's funding development. Is it though? Is it though? What's being developed? Is the money raised from the, from people pre-purchasing these, uh, concept ships actually being put towards the development of those ships? Or like the game in general? Because really, like, from what I've kind of like read of people who kind of were talking about, it was an interesting thread I read. I don't, I don't recall if it was on Reddit or if it was on you know, just the comment section of one of these stories about this on one of the gaming sites, if it was Kotaku or Polygon or whatever else, someone was kind of honestly asking, like, I know there's like, they they were like, hey, so I'm just looking for another, like, you know, kind of casual thing I could get into. Would it, it's like, how bad actually is this game at this point? How unplayable is it if I wanted to get into it? Because, you know, they're like, I could spend 40 bucks on, a copy of the game right now and then like, you know, 
if it's fun enough and I could get some enjoyment out of it, like how, how far along is it? And like a lot of replies were like, you would be very disappointed. Like your $40 would probably be better spent elsewhere because there's other far better options. Apparently now, again, I'm not speaking from experience here. So this could all like, this is all speculation on, you know, my part, but just based on what I've read, it really doesn't sound like there's a game there yet or there or whatever game is there is not very far along. And when you look at like comparable games with comparable $500 million budgets, you would expect Grand Theft Auto like five. Yeah. Basically. Or Grand Theft Auto six or something in that vein. Yeah, or a new Elder Scrolls or whatever else. Like, like $500 million. That's. Top level triple A budget in terms of video games. And that includes the marketing component for the game as well. Yeah. That's development and marketing because marketing can be a whole other, ex- you know, big expense too. Oh, of course. But development and marketing for a big triple A game, like a Grand Theft Auto. Or a Call of Duty or whatever. A Call else. of Duty, an Elder Scrolls, something like that. This is nowhere near that. Yeah. This is $500 million that has basically gone into a game that, by all accounts, is like so far, eh. You know what? This kind of reminds me of uh, what we have seen sometimes in scientific research circles, uh, where there's cash calls for, oh, we have this this new development in this, you know, area we've been working on. Perhaps researchers are working on, uh, or institutions have been working on for years and years. Oh, we we've had this breakthrough, and. You know, we're only five years away from from this big new development that'll you know be a revolution. We'll uh, better uh, have better health outcomes for people, better society, blah blah blah. And you notice five years is the magic window that often is used. Yeah, where it's okay, it's a couple years away, but it's not that far away. It's a reasonable amount of years away. Yeah, and it's always five years away, but it's always five years away from being five years away. Yeah, it like, no matter when you ask, it's five years away. It doesn't matter if the money was, you know, received ten years ago, it's still five years away. And this very much reminds me of those instances that uh, you and I have, you know, read about and come across in, you know, years past uh, of doing the show and just uh, general existence on the internet. Yeah. Five years away, but from being five years away. Yeah, and until eventually it goes from being five years away to released, and then people are disappointed by how underwhelming it is. <laughs> so it's very interesting that, well, what seems to happen now, I mean, I'm just kind of speculating at this point and kind of spitballing what I think might happen or what I think might be happening is a lot of AAA games get released now People are very underwhelmed with them, and then they're continued to be worked on over a period of time until, you know, quality of life improvements, bug fixes, whatever else, eventually, like, make the game into a really good thing that people, you know, generally universally like. The Witcher 3 is a great example of this. Mm -hmm. When it first came out, people thought it was cool, but, like, you know, it was very clunky and whatever else. Fast forward a year and a half, and all of a sudden now it's like game of the year material. People love it. They've released all this free DLC and stuff, or they've released all these free upgrades to the game. Then released a couple of DLC packs that basically double the content of the game for like not a lot of money extra. And yeah, like that's sort of like 
if you look at that development cycle, like after the game came out, arguably, like people are kind of shitting all over Cyberpunk as being a thing, but I think Witcher 3 is kind of similar, but, you know, just timing-wise, and, you know, because Witcher 3 became this thing that everyone loved, you know, over the course of its whole life cycle, like, I think that there was probably just as much post-release development that happened as there was pre-release, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So, it just, the difference with them is that, you know, they considered whatever they put out actually released, and then there was actual, like, fixes that happened after the game was released. I think maybe the same thing actually technically happened with, with, you know, Star Citizen. Maybe it actually has been released technically. Like maybe we should think about it this way. Maybe it was released years ago and they've just been funding, fixing it to make it better over this whole time. But semantically, they don't want it to be considered released because they're, you know, no one's been blown away by it yet and they want to keep working on it until there's that version of the game out there that people might consider being mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. That's a little conspiracy theory, maybe, but is that that outside of the realm of possibility? I won't say it's entirely beyond the realm of possibility for the uh, reason that the uh, example that was coming to my mind as you were talking through that uh, thought process is we have seen that kind of play out, too, with another game, another big space game, No, no Man's, Man's Sky. Sky. Yeah. Exactly. Where it needed a whole long, you know, post-release development cycle to actually become the game that it was initially promised as. Yeah. And now it is that game, from what I understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, it had a lot of, you know, sour taste in people's mouth because of how it was initially released. But now the game that's out there is worthy of, you know, whatever hype that they initially wanted to put towards it. From what I understand, I haven't played it in a while, but... If you're looking for a big giant space exploration game that is also a multiplayer experience, maybe go for that one. But also, again, it had like, I don't recall, three-year development cycle or something before it was released. But then after it was released, it had like a five-year development cycle or however long it's been since No Man's Sky originally came out. Mm -hmm. I think five years. I think is, five years. Isn't unreasonable to say. Like, and they're still, they've still been working on it pretty frequently. Like, so, that's a game that was actually released. Is is this Star Citizen? Like to me, it seems like it actually has been released as well, but it's it hasn't lifted. It hasn't been basically brave enough to lift the you know pre-release banner from it because they're just not you know people haven't been satisfied with what they've played yet. Mm -hmm. Haven't been uh, brave enough, bold enough to say, okay, we're here, we're open. Yeah. You know, throw open the doors and uh, just welcome everyone on in, keeping it still contained to the small, dedicated community that kind of has been there from the start. Yeah, except there's nothing stopping anyone from becoming a part of that community. That's true. Which is the distinction here. Like, there's, it's not like they're restricting people from trying it. Isn't that the same thing as being released? If anyone can just go and buy it, you're a released product. This is a true point. I don't believe it's any sort of invitation only. No. Closed alpha, closed beta, whatever stage of development it is. It is open to the public. Yeah. So is that not released? I would count to me as released. Yes. Yeah. So 
this is why talking about this game is so frustrating and weird because it seems like it is released and it's an underwhelming game that they keep shoveling money into to try to make better. But what they're calling it is just, oh, no, we're still funding the actual release because it's still in development. It's like, well, if it's still in development, why is anyone able to go and play it? Like, that doesn't sound like it's still in development. No, it doesn't. Normally, people cannot just go freely play and, and help themselves to a uh, gaming experience with a product if it's still in development. You could not go play Grand Theft Auto V while it was still in development. No. And I, I mean, granted, like, with the whole world of indie games and pre-releases and betas and all that stuff, it gets a little bit tricky, but, like, like, like it... it Boils down to semantics at a certain point, right? True. And I, I think part of the issue too is just how much, uh, uh, Cloud Imperium Games was building up Star Citizen, uh, to be this very big, very expansive, almost, uh, realistic type space MMO experience with, uh, ships aplenty, you know, a rich, deep universe that can do so much that perhaps in the same vein that, uh, we saw with No Man's Sky, promised more than what they were able to deliver. Yeah. And they're still trying to play catch-up. The difference being, we know uh, uh, Hello Games, the, the developers of No Man's Sky, had a small team. Yeah. We know they were a small outfit, and the problem they faced with No Man's Sky, as we've said before on this program, is they got overhyped by Sony. Yeah, exactly. Like, they were given triple A main stage exposure, even though they were not a triple A main stage team with a triple A main stage game. Yeah. Yeah. They were an impressive looking indie game, but indie games, you know, <laughs> they also didn't have like triple A main stage media like training. <laughs> no, no. And I think that might be uh, one of the more formative experiences they took from that uh, relationship with Sony. Yeah. Uh, is they, they need people to help them with that. Yeah. And I mean, that that's just sort of like managing public expectations is a thing that you have to do when you have a very popular product on your hand. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just start over promising things or like talking about things that you might want to do because people will misconstrue that as stuff that will get done. You know, like when you're, when you're saying, oh, you know what? It would be really cool to have space battles. Yeah, we'll consider that. People might take that as a thing of like, oh, that means they're working on it now. Mm -hmm. No, no, but you need to like learn about managing public expectations. And like when you're an indie developer, you know, that's a very tricky like road to navigate because, you know, like <laughs> normally you're not basically showered with like, you know, the entirety of like, you know, the millions of people that are, like, going to be buying AAA games and expecting a AAA experience, like, normally you're basically, like, going to have, like, a natural progression of, like, people through, like, a Steam Greenlight or whatever else kind of thing, and word of mouth will basically spread around, and, like, you have a different expectation of a, of a game that's an indie game made by, like, a small development team. They've probably never heard of the studio's yeah. name. Yeah, like, and if it's just coming through, like, if it if it just, you you got the information or, like, came to a game because of word of mouth, and, like, usually it's, like, oh, just a small, a small development studio made this game, and it's only, like, eight bucks, and, oh, you can play it, and I've been playing it for hours, and it's great, and blah, blah, blah. 
you're going to have a different opinion of that than you are, man, I spent 70 bucks on this new thing by, you know, like, you know, this new Call of Duty game and blah, 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 and whatever else. Like, there's different expectations you have. So, yeah. Anyways, the, all this other tangent is not related. Like, yeah. Basically, Cloud Imperium Games is a scam? <laughs> Is what I'm, I think we're trying to say here. I uh, I think that's going to be our running belief and thought on uh, Star Citizen until there's something more tangible developed or, or more firm declarations made until till you know it looks like something other than just a, a money fundraising giant. Yeah, Ponzi scheme. I I would I wouldn't know. Well, maybe. I was I trying know. to think. Well, would it be mar- multi-level marketing? I don't know. Would it though? Because there, no, not, I, I guess not. I there's guess not, not a tangible asset, but there are still assets being exchanged. Yeah, can you sell off ships that you've? Bu- I, I don't know. I don't know either. I, yeah. Anyway, these are all questions we don't understand as people being on the outside of it. But uh, yeah, we uh, we'll, we'll figure it out and see what the future holds. Yeah, that's yeah, that's all we can really do. But speaking of the future and where, you know, that's going to end up landing, uh we have news and finally have seen the end result for now of the crazy lawsuit that's been happening between Apple and Epic Games. Indeed, the judge in the uh the case, uh Judge Ivan Gonzalez uh, Rogers, finally uh issuing some sort of ruling uh just the other day uh came down on the Friday morning, uh the morning of Friday, September 10th, and pretty much the TLDR uh, no one explicitly is the winner. No one is explicitly the loser. Uh, either side kind of perhaps would have hoped for more, uh, but they'll take what they can get. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Epic Games has to make a payment to Apple. Uh, well, actually, I don't think it's fair to say that one side is not the winner. I think Apple might end up being the bigger loser overall. In the long run. In the long run, yes. In the long run, yes. But specifically from this, uh, they weren't necessarily the, the overt loser because they and their operation and their handling of the app store were not declared a monopoly, which is what Epic Games was really gunning for. Yeah. And that being said, Epic Games, uh, you know, Apple does come out of this with some financial reparations. Uh, Epic Games has to make a payment of, uh, over million to Apple. Uh, That is to basically pay Apple back for the money that they lost out on when Epic Games had the, like that week last year when they were directing people to make payments outside the App Store for transactions done through Fortnite. Yeah. But Uh, the amount that they have to pay back is the 30% of the transactions during that period of time, which was Three and a half million dollars. Yes, more than three and a half million dollars. So, uh, which means Epic Games made like roughly 10 million in microtransactions during that time. Yeah. So if they're making 10 million dollars in microtransactions a week, three and a half million dollars a week is huge, right? And that's just for Epic Games with Fortnite. So, but the big reason I think you suggested that Apple might be the loser in the long run they they could lose out but they're still they're still a true 2 trillion dollar company yeah uh is that 
the judge in the case, Ivan Gonzalez Rogers, issued uh, a new injunction against Apple that uh, and says that Apple is, quote, permanently restrained and enjoined from prohibiting developers from including in their apps and their metadata buttons external links or other calls to action that direct customers to purchasing mechanisms in addition to in-app purchasing and communicating with customers through points of contact obtained voluntarily from customers through account registration with the within the app. So in short, apps that are sold in the App Store uh, or acquired through the Apple App Store uh, can now direct you to a payment system that is outside the App Store. Yeah. That is their own system. Yeah, so this is a precedent-setting thing. Like, that's huge. It absolutely is. Yeah. This is what kicked the whole Shlamazel off last year when Epic Games randomly, although not uh, without uh, forethought, introduced the way for you to make payments to uh, to them through for- in Fortnite through their own method. Yeah. Bypassing Apple and the 30% cut they took on all transactions. Yeah, so essentially just introducing a system in-game without you having to leave the game to go to the App Store where you can just enter your credit card information or whatever else. Yeah. So now, that's this ruling uh, is kind of held over for about 90 days. It's going to take effect on uh, December 9th unless something happens at a higher court level, uh, appeals or whatnot. But uh, for the time being, it's laid over for 90 days. And then starting December 9th, unless anything else happens legally, uh, is when you will start to be able to see apps and develop or apps and developers collecting and holding on to more of their money. Yeah. Doing and processing their own transactions instead of going through Apple and having to pay that 30% cut. Yeah. So I do know that a lot of payment processors, well, most payment processors, if you're just looking at just processing payments, their cut is way less than 30%. Like on transactions, if I'm not mistaken, I don't have the specific numbers, but I think, like, let's just say it's usually closer to 2%. So, or if not less, <laughs> but like, and a lot of these payment processors, like, you know, Stripe, Square, um, PayPal even, like even some credit card companies, Visa, MasterCard, they have their own, they already have integrations that you can hook applications into that exist already. So this Apple thing was just an artificial wall, essentially, like that they were putting out there to say, well, if you want microtransactions in your game, you have to do it through us Mm -hmm. or else your game can't be, or your app in general, you know, can't exist on the store. And what this judge is saying is you can't do that. So. And that's a big deal. That is a big deal. And it's going to be a big deal going forward. Yep. Uh, Now, of course, this is going to bode well for someone like Epic Games, who now, that's already what they were wanting. What they really wanted was the judge to declare Apple a monopoly and antitrust litigation, blah, blah, blah. That did not happen in no small part because uh, in the full ruling, which is 180 pages long, if you really need help sleeping, we link to the full <laughs> judge's ruling on our website of thearcadeshow.com, and you can read through the PDF there. But uh, Judge Gonzalez Rogers explained her thinking on the issue uh, in greater detail, and she rejected both parties' definition of the marketplace 
at issue in this case, saying, quote, the relevant market here is digital mobile gaming transactions, not gaming generally, and not Apple's own internal operating systems related to the App Store. Un- and later on, uh, regarding the market definition, she said, quote, the court cannot ultimately conclude that Apple is a monopolist under either federal or state antitrust laws. Nonetheless, the trial did show that Apple is engaging in anti-competitive conduct under California's competition laws, end quote. So Apple does receive a, a knuckle wrapping uh, for the fact that the judge pointed out that they are engaging in anti-competitive conduct under state competition laws, although the bigger deal of antitrust litigation and antitrust laws still remains out there. Yeah. So, uh, again, I think uh, when the ruling came down, uh, Tim Sweeney wrote on Epic Games that they were disappointed. He said, uh, I think on Twitter, quote, Today's ruling isn't a win for developers or, f- or for consumers. Epic is fighting for fair competition among in-app payment methods and app stores for a billion consumers, end quote. Yeah. Okay, well. Yeah, fine. You're still running a multi-billion dollar company, but, uh, I mean, Yeah. Also, like, so I, I think what could end up happening here is like, yeah, people could just keep all of their microtransaction fees the same and just make more money off of them now. Mm-hmm. But I, what I could actually see happening now is in celebration, Epic Games with Fortnite, now they could actually potentially start, you know, generally advertising, hey, all of our microtransactions are cheaper now. Then, like, I could see them basically saying, like, across the board, maybe they'll, they'll cut their prices by 20, 30%, still make the same amount of money, but then maybe drawing more people. And then now you've made more money now because the, there's more potential for making more money now because mm-hmm. with every transaction, you're making way more. So that could be a thing too. Like, maybe we're going to see microtransactions pick back up and like, become a big thing again, like to the point where maybe they were like maybe to the point where they were a few years ago when they were first starting to kick off. And that's a different problem, of course, but that's one potential thing we're going to see. Another potential thing we're going to see now is maybe companies like Epic Games, because remember, Epic Games are also the Unreal Engine people. They are. And, you know, they might want to start baking things into the Unreal Engine, like, hey, if you want to offer microtransactions in your games that are made with the Unreal Engine for that target you know, these iOS devices, hey, use our use our native thing built into the Unreal Engine rather than having to go through the uh the App Store. Mm-hmm. Like our price is only this percent, whereas Apple's charging thirty percent, well we'll only charge this percent. So what I can see happening is maybe overall better prices and better market share or not market share, but better, um, better rates for developers potentially one way or the other, whether or not Apple ends up, whether or not this ends up happening where other companies step in with cheaper ways of offering microtransactions for other developers. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to be an interesting time to see what happens between now and December 9th, uh, three months away. Uh, do we see uh, 
you know, companies like PayPal, Stripe, uh, um, Square, hell, even, you know, MasterCard or someone else like that really make a concerted push, uh, push to try and be, you know, the payment processor for microtransactions, uh, on mobile devices or something like that. You know, use us instead of developing your own system. Here we'll only charge this much. Does a new company develop? This seems like uh, there'd be an, or with this ruling, it seems like there would be an opportunity now in that space to be, hey, uh, you know, maybe, uh, developers just don't want to, you know, de- deal with or worry about the, the transaction processing side of things. They just want to stick to developing their game, making it fun as can be. Can't blame them. Totally understand. So then that creates a space where another third party company could step in. Maybe a whole new company that uh, could exist in this space. And that's just what they do. Yeah. We'll handle your microtransactions for a really nominal fee. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that is unless, you know, until Apple steps in and decides, you know what? We'll just undercut everyone because we still can and we'll. We'd prefer to just get whatever nominal value that you would be giving to these other companies. We'll just do it ourselves. We'll we'll just make our fees way better. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think the trend was already going in that direction. Uh, perhaps it uh, works to an extreme where things go really low, like 10% or less. 5%, 2%. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I know, I think what uh, a company like Square on their transactions charges... Even less than one percent, like a tenth of a percent or something like that, for their uh, pro, uh, payment uh, transaction processings. So yeah, better rates for companies are entirely possible, and you're not necessar- necessarily stuck paying the thirty percent, uh, you know, pay us or get out fee, the the quote unquote service fee that uh, all of us have paid when going through Ticketmaster, and we all groan and malign and wonder what the hell it's really for, and it's just the we-need-more-money fee. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's really what the Apple 30% cut has has been and will always be. But that being said, too, I don't think it's just uh, Apple who needs to uh, take this into mind. Uh, Epic Games also has a similar litigation, I believe, against uh, Google and their handling of uh, uh, these... Uh, sorts of transactions for the uh, Android marketplace already. So, yes, uh, as Russell Brandon from The Verge points out at the very end of this article, quote, uh, the, this ruling is likely to have significant impacts outside of Apple. Google is already facing a similar lawsuit from Epic Games over its own efforts to maintain the Google Play Store as the central source of software on Android, drawing on elaborate deals with phone manufacturers. Yeah. But still, Google's getting their cut of transactions as well. Oh, of course they are, yeah. And if we look at uh, the console market space as well, each uh, company, Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, have their own game store. They get their cut. Yeah. Which is often 30%. Yep. Will that change in, in the uh, you know wake of this ruling as well? Probably. I mean, this is, like, this is what happens when precedents get, you know, set. Because, I mean, I'm sure all these other companies will try to, you know, have similar lawsuits anytime anyone tries to go around their own integrated systems and, you know, going against terms of service and stuff. Because, you know, like, yeah, you still have a terms of service and terms of use and whatever else for using your service. And, you know, 
I don't specifically know, but like if I was Nintendo, I would still like regardless of this, I would still probably try to, you know, say, hey, no, like you can only buy DLC and like whatever else through the Nintendo store. Like that's the only way that we're gonna let you have your game on the Switch. Right? Mm-hmm. So like <laughs> but if there's a precedent set, you're gonna have a hard time fighting that in court because it's like, well, actually Epic won their case against Apple, who was trying to do the same thing, so... <laughs> and then you have to argue from... Uh, uh, argue why your case and why your situation is different. Yeah, exactly. Which, good luck. And it's a it's a harder case to make. But with enough expensive lawyers, anything can be argued... Yeah. Well. But, I mean, good luck going against precedent, right? True enough. So, uh, this is going to be an interesting time. Is everything on the App Store going to be just absolutely littered with uh, the opportunity for microtransactions, you know, starting in December with this uh, change in uh, Apple's approach to microtransactions? Yeah, maybe. Is it going just to be an insufferable time to have apps uh, on the App Store and just download anything onto your device? Yeah. We'll see. I mean, there's both good and bad to this, but uh, we won't know about it until we get there. Again, the judge's ruling really takes effect December 9th, uh, and we'll see how things play out from there. But hey, let's actually speak about some games instead of just money for a moment here. Yeah. Sony this week ha- held another one of their PlayStation Showcase live streaming uh, uh infomercial events. Yeah, Sony had their own Nintendo Direct. They sure did. <laughs> uh, and they revealed a number of actually uh, big titles that really give a good reason uh, for why you should get a PlayStation, PlayStation 5 going forward, as everything they showed off is going to be exclusive on the PlayStation 5, well, version of next-gen console. Yeah. yeah and not uh, necessarily something that will work on the PS4 and also PS5, no, it'll just be PS5 solely. Yeah, I mean... the In the Sony ecosystem. The one that I saw the most buzz around was the remake of the Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Yes. Which had a lot of people going, holy crap, if this is a real remake, and if they're doing a real thing, like, this could be huge, because that was the game that originally put Bioware on the map. That's true. And, uh yeah, it basically paved the way for, like, you know, Mass Effect and all this stuff, and... Well, games like that anyways, but yeah, so that was a big thing, but there was a lot of other stuff too. Marvel basically like had a, you know, had like, you know, a, a shotgun blast of just a whole bunch of stuff that went out being like, hey, look at all these cool looking games. Blang. <laughs> just like, the audience was like, whoa, look yeah. at all this buckshot here. I think it's safe to say uh, Sony and Marvel might, uh, might have uh, a thing going on. Might be a bit of a tryst. Uh, on their Facebook uh, status, they might have to change it to it's complicated uh, because the first, I think, reveal was the uh, fact that there's a sequel to Marvel's Spider-Man, which uh, was a really slick-looking game. Uh, there was the uh, Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales additional content thing where it's more substantive than DLC but less than a full-sized, full-fledged game. Uh, it was an additional story arc with uh, Miles Morales in the game, but they showed off the next one, Marvel's Spider-Man 2. Uh, this one will see Peter Parker and Miles Morales teaming up as they take on uh, Venom, who is shown off at the very end of the trailer. And there's narration throughout this uh, 90-second, uh, I guess, teaser trailer that really sounds like uh, somebody is talking, and it sounds like that someone might be Craven the Hunter. 
who's uh, looking for competition, hunting prey, blah, blah, blah. But uh, that got a lot of people excited, the fact that Spider-Man 2 was announced and also that it's going to have Venom, which I don't think is necessarily an accident given the fact that Sony Studios has... Well, they did one Venom movie. They have another Venom movie coming out later this fall. So, And they might have a third one by the time this next Spider-Man comes out. Because this Spider-Man sequel, Spider-Man 2, has been announced to come in 2023. So it's not coming anytime soon, but uh, uh, something you can kind of look forward to in the future. But you did mention, uh, uh, you know... Marvel with a basically shotgun blast because that wasn't the only only Marvel related announcement coming from this PlayStation showcase. No, there was a, another one that really surprised people. Uh, I mean, made me a little bit more excited. Like, yeah, the Spider Man game was cool, but like, really, in terms of Marvel characters, I always liked Wolverine more. And you know, they revealed that. Hey, I mean, they revealed in a, in the most teasery way possible. <laughs> like, like. Purely just a sizzle reel, like nothing more substantive than that, but they they revealed, yeah, there's a Wolverine game also going to be coming out f- only for PlayStation 5. And this one is being worked on by Insomniac Games, who have done the, well, they did the Spider-Man game, they've done Ratchet & Clank, and now they're doing the Wolverine game, which the... Teaser trailer, as you mentioned, was very teasery. Uh, yeah. If you haven't watched it, we link to it on our website, thearcadeshow.com. It's only a minute, but it's basically a, a really, really destroyed bar room. Yeah, it's 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 sort of, I want to say it's a classic Wolverine scene. Like, it's the scene that we've seen play out in many comics and whatever else, you know, in terms of the Wolverine mythos and universe and stuff. It's basically just Wolverine sitting by himself at a really crappy looking bar. Drinking whatever BS cheap whiskey, and then some big guy starts advancing on him from, you know, behind. And then it, like, zooms in on his hands, and you see his claws, you know, snicked out of there. And that's, that's and, it. The end. And logo shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if there was a room full of people, they would have been like, Wee! And that's exactly when it would have happened. Like, yeah. Now, in the uh, in a blog post on the Sony PlayStation blog, talking about this... Uh, uh, it was said that this game is a standalone game and is being directed by Brian Horton and Cameron Christian, the latter of whom was a creative lead on Marvel's Spider-Man, Miles Morales. Uh, the blog post also said that this game is still very early in development, uh, and, uh, so there wasn't even a release window given for this yet. Like with Spider-Man 2, it was given a window of 2023. This Wolverine game does not even have that yet. Yeah. So it's that early on, so late 2023, maybe 2024, so it's still several years away. Hell, maybe it gets pushed to the next PS uh, or PlayStation console. Maybe it's a PS6 game. Maybe, PS6 launch title. <laughs> Calling it now. <laughs> yes. Uh, but if you want something a bit uh, sooner than those games, than those Marvel games, and, uh, you know, the Marvel characters are all nice, but you need something more visceral, more uh, more engine-based, then uh, Sony has got you covered. They showed off a new trailer for Gran Turismo 7 and actually gave it a formal, proper release date. Yeah, so it's going to be launching on both the PlayStation 4 and 5 on March 4th, 2022. I almost said 2022nd. But no, 2022. Uh, that is a unique way to state the year. <laughs> Impressive. Yes. I mean, it's not wrong. It's also not right. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh the twenty second year after the two thousandth year um to put it in a very complicated way yes uh, are you some sort of uh, fortune teller <laughs> Uh, I mean, speaking in circles to your clients, or yes, oh, good. always makes sense. Uh, so Why wouldn't I be? You you like money too much? There's no <laughs> right. money in fortune telling. <laughs> oh man! Uh, but it was announced on the PlayStation blog, and the developers say the goal of Gran Turismo Seven is to quote convey everything from the last 150 years of car and racing culture whether you are a lifelong fan or discovering cars for the first time. Uh, and the trailer that was shown off for this game looks really slick. And my takeaway from watching the, this three to four minute video, that was the trailer and the new release date announcement video, is that they were engaging in basically shine and polish porn <laughs> because everything was just shine and polish on the cars. There was a number of shots, especially early on in the video, once you get to the actual gameplay footage, where the camera is really focused in on a surface, uh, but in the surface, it turns out to be a uh, a vehicle that the camera is zoomed in on, but you see the reflection of like a building or some sort of landscape off in the background being reflected in the surface of the car. Well, that Gran Turismo has always been sort of been known for that, right? Like, right, even going back to the first PlayStation, mm-hmm. I mean, I recall the first Gran Turismo tried to convey that as well. Even though, I mean, obviously in those days, it wasn't like, you couldn't have that level of detail back then, but they still tried, it seemed. Like, they made it seem very shiny and very, like, sleek, like, you know, you would imagine that it would be like a mirror-type surface. And uh, certainly with the advanced technologies offered in the PlayStation 5, they can really do that and amp it up to a whole other degree. And, uh, yeah, that trailer shows that's what they're going for. Oh, Shine. yeah. Shine. Shine, polish, very mirror-sharp focus on <laughs> every surface. Every surface possible. Anything that could reflect light in this game has just been glossed and uh, waxed to the point of, you know, extreme. Yes. So imagine each car has at least 18 coats of wax and it'll never get dirty, which I know these games are, you know, are video games and they're not to be realistic, but come on. Like, like, the cars get some level of dirty. It's like, have any of you owned a car before? (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever seen a car in real life? I mean, even even the ones that are super clean, like, there's some, like, uh, you drive it for two seconds and you're going to get some some schmutz on it. Some kind of schmutz, dirt, dust, you know, a stone kicks up and and nicks it from the side or something. Yeah. I also speak as someone who hasn't washed his car for the last year, but... Yeah, well, same. Yeah, so... All right. <laughs> Maybe that's just my envy of, like, look at all these shiny cars. Stupid jerks on their shiny cars. I want a shiny car. <laughs> Why can't I have a shiny car? I mean, you could go through a... Dri- uh, like a... a drive car, through car wash? Car, yeah, or... It's the easiest way to wash a car. <laughs> you don't even have to get out. I mean, I guess, but... Then you have to drive there, and it's so much work. Ugh. It's not worth it. it. Just do it the next time you get gas. Yeah. So much like work. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Fair, I suppose. Uh, But one more game that uh, was announced from Sony as part of this uh, 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 PlayStation showcase uh, is coming to the PlayStation 5. 
and also PC. Uh, interestingly enough, it is Uncharted 4 as well as Uncharted Lost Legacy. They're being re- remastered into a PS5 version. Uh, that is coming from Naughty Dog as well as a PC version that is coming shortly thereafter from Iron Galaxy. So Uncharted Legacy or the Uncharted Legacy of Thieves collection will feature enhanced versions of both the Naughty Dog Adventures uh, release uh, Naughty Dog Adventures released for the PS4, excuse me. Uh, so, Uncharted 4 was, of course, the game from 2016. Lost Legacy was a uh, kind of side story, uh, but they're both going to be coming out to the uh, PC as well. The Legacy of Thieves collection will release in early 2022. So, Sony making a bit of an effort to actually release some of their titles and properties for the PC platform. Realizing yeah. that perhaps their fans also enjoy PC games, or that PC games could also enjoy Sony games? Yeah, or that, you know, maybe maybe your games, you might want them to be have a wider audience than just your platform? It feels like Sony is slowly coming around to realizing that fact. Yeah, Nintendo hasn't realized that fact yet. But At the same know, time, they don't need to. Not yet. I mean, look at the Switch, still selling... Gang, like gangbusters. Yeah, though, that's not to say though that, you know, their, their games wouldn't be that much bigger bestsellers if they weren't available on, you know, other platforms like PC, Mac OS, etc. Yeah, true. Uh, point well taken, but, uh, Sony at least, uh, finally coming around to, uh, the multi-platform release between console and PC. Of course, Microsoft has been doing that for years already because PC. I mean, the PC gaming market is uh, still thriving, even with the advanced, you know, new uh, gen consoles in the PS5, in the Xbox X slash Xbox Series S, uh, and of course the Switch still just kind of being the Switch, its own thing. But yeah. uh, nevertheless, uh, so those are some games to look forward to in the future. But uh, perhaps at this moment, we should take some time to cast our eyes towards towards the past and uh, check out some things, talk about some things, discuss some things that are from uh, from years gone by, from yesteryear, that are celebrating milestone anniversaries. We have three items to talk about this week. All of them are TV series, back from the bygone era of Saturday morning television, which uh, if you were a kid of a certain age, that would be a thing. Saturdays, you don't have school, so you get up uh, and... Whatever time you get up, you could just grab your bowl of cereal, plunk yourself down in front of the television in the living room, and just be entertained for hours on end with uh, various forms of animated and uh, kid-focused programming. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah, I mean, there was... Like, I remember being a child. I mean, I don't know if it's a still a thing, but when I was a child, when you were a child, we were the same age. <laughs> like, Saturdays, like, when I was 10... It would be the only time when I'd want to get up early to start watching TV because there would be a good solid five hour block of just stuff that I like to watch. And it was like, it felt like it was like, oh, this is like TV that's meant for me. Yes. And it would be, oh God, cartoons. There, it, most likely it was, uh, cartoons. A good majority of it would have been cartoons back then, but also perhaps some live action programming. Um, 
oh god, things like Ninja Turtles, of course, were still on the air. Uh, maybe some Power Rangers thrown in. Yeah, uh, but even even weirder things, you know, like like the Beetlejuice cartoon. But even not even talking about just the shows in sp- in specific, like there would be like content that would stitch the shows together. Like there would be in between show content, and sometimes even. Like stuff that would break up commercial breaks that would just be unrelated to the shows, but still memorable for children. Like I think of like the weird, I think it was ABC used to have those weird like claymation, claymation things where they would like have the like after these messages, we'll be right back kind of songs. And those are in my head and those are never going to go away. They've been there for 30 years. <laughs> those are, those are stuck. No, only people my age might know what they're talking, what I'm talking about. You will. Thankfully, <laughs> but, yes. But others won't. I mean, sometimes I seem like a crazy person. I'm like, after these messages, I'll be right back. And they're like, what? <laughs> I'm like, oh, never mind. <laughs> then you realize you're talking to people younger than you and you've wasted your breath. <laughs> yeah. Let's say, oh, well, never mind. Whatever. Just, just ignore the old person here in the corner, I guess. <laughs> But uh, we have three items to uh, talk about uh, that all kind of debuted around the same time, although one debuted more recently uh, of the three than the other two. But well, uh, two, two debuted two more debuted. recently, yes. Uh, well, well, two debuted on the same day, yes, in 1986. One debuted on uh, on a day by itself in 1991, a little bit after the de- debuts of the first two. Yeah. Uh, but uh, where would you like to start this week? Well, you want to go back to 1990? or started in 1986. Well, we can talk about the 86 ones a little bit first. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the 86 ones, I think, makes uh, sense. The 86 collection. <laughs> the 86 collection, yes. Um, yeah, of these shows, I have more memories of one than I do the other, admittedly, because one was a far bigger piece of culture, I think, at the time, mm-hmm. whereas the other one just kind of felt like that weird show that, like, I watched on occasion, but maybe I'd I might have been a little bit too young to fully get. Mm-hmm. Um, well, which one of the two would you want to start with? Well, I'm thinking what you're talking about, perhaps the bigger piece uh, that you watch perhaps more often, as opposed to the one you did not get. I'm going to guess that the one you watched more often perhaps was The Real Ghostbusters. Yes. The the animated version of the very popular Ghostbusters movies Yes, uh, that had come out in the 80s, because as we saw through the 80s into the 90s, Everything received an animated adaptation. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Like, everything did. Especially into the 90s, but we saw it, of course, in the 80s as well. And The Real Ghostbusters, again, debuted on September 13th, 1986. Lasted a decent amount of time, lasting all the way until October 5th, 1991. Several seasons. Uh, it was called The Real Ghostbusters because there was previously another animated series called Ghostbusters. Yeah, which I remember seeing once or a couple times because they had it in Canada. I think it was a Canadian show. May have been. Or maybe British or something like that. It was, it was a weird not sh- necessarily American show. Yeah, and it had nothing to do with the movie The Ghostbusters. Nothing whatsoever. It was just a weird movie there. I remember there being like an ape. There was an ape and there was a car with like a ghost face on the front that were actually like some form of a specter could emanate from. Yeah. Yes, and it it was uh, some weird ragtag crew that would hunt uh, down ghosts and engage and basically have their own Scooby-Doo adventures. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was an animated version of a show that aired in like the 60s or something. 
that also was called Ghostbusters, but that was like a live action version. So, and, and actually, if you watch the uh, uh, Netflix series movies, uh, the movies that made us, they do have an episode on there about the first Ghostbusters movie, and it was a pain in the ass to try and uh, get the rights to call the the first Ghostbusters movie Ghostbusters because of that previous series. There was that live action version of uh, a show called Ghostbusters that had the ape and and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, and they spawned a uh, an animated series, which is why this version of the Ghostbusters movie series had to be called the real Ghostbusters. But that's fine. Uh, this was obviously the more popular of the two Ghostbuster named uh, programming uh, shows, and it was a. I mean, this was a big part of culture and just youth uh, being a youth at the time as well. I remember yeah. having a whole slew of the real Ghostbuster toys. Oh yeah, I remember. I I, I also remember having some of the uh, the McDonald's uh, Happy Meal toys that were related to it. Mm-hmm. Like I know, well. I had a Slimer horn on my bike. Yes. And like... Did you have the Ecto-1 crank horn? My sister had the crank horn. Nice. And yeah, it was uh like, yeah, like they were, it was huge. Like Ghostbusters was a very, very big part of culture. I mean, like the 84 film Ghostbusters and then the real Ghostbusters TV series. Because it also went, it went on for seven seasons. Like, there was no shortage of real Ghostbusters. No, like, yeah, there was a whole lot. Yeah, like, I I remember it basically being on as much and airing around the same times as the Ninja Turtles. So, like, I have, like, similar fond memories from my childhood watching both shows. Like, you know, because they would, like, similar kind of, like, like production values and everything really like in kind of in terms of like quality and you know visual you know, set pieces and stuff mm-hmm. like that you'd see both like a lot of kind of similarities between both and you know I I like them both and I like the movie so it made sense that you know both would be things that I would want to watch absolutely and uh, with the this being an animated version of ghostbusters you could basically go off and have the characters do whatever and have any kind of zany adventure come up i think there were episodes where like where the real ghostbusters uh well not the real like on the real ghostbusters show the four of them uh, the four ghostbuster characters i think they fought cthulhu at one point <laughs> yes and i think they had christmas episodes where they had to uh fight or deal with the ghosts of christmas past uh, that springs to mind as well, but, uh, like, a ridiculously big part of just, you know, marketing to kids at the time in, in the mid to late 80s into the early 90s, um, you know, having the costume, all the toys, the, uh, the pretend proton pack as well, with the giant yellow foam piece that came out of your, uh, blaster wand. Yep. The, the trap as well had that, uh, just a really enjoyable series. Like, one of the better uh, film-to-cartoon adaptations there were. Yeah, because, again, we, we've mentioned this several times on this program. If you've listened to us over the years, we've talked about lots of these. There, there were tons of them. Like, if there was a popular movie that seemed like it could have been, you know, for the kids, there was then going to be a cartoon TV series that, you know, also went with it. Beetlejuice, 
Adam's family. Adam's family. Yeah. There was a Rambo cartoon. Yeah. There was also, like, well, even, like, there was Tales from the Crypt Keeper. That's true, too. Like, Tales from the Crypt was not child-friendly in terms of, you know, <laughs> as a media franchise, but they were like, well, we got to get the kids somehow. Okay, we'll make a Saturday morning-style cartoon called Tales of the Crypt Cryptkeeper. Have the same guy who's the voice of the Crypt Keeper on both, <laughs> and he's just as creepy... <laughs> But, we're, but anyways, it's a cartoon, so it's, it's okay. It's a cartoon, so it's okay, and like we'll make it a little bit goofier. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes was another one that I remember. It was That's right. It wasn't even a super popular movie. It was just kind of like a B movie that made it a little bit popular. It wasn't even a trauma movie, was it? I don't recall actually. But it was in the vein of like a B level trauma movie. Yeah, same thing with like the Toxic, Toxic Avenger. He had like you know. That, like, these are all, everything that was a semi-popular movie that seemed like it could have been marketed to kids had a cartoon. Police Academy. That, yes, yes. Police Academy had, a, like, obviously popular enough to be a long-running movie franchise in the 80s into the 90s, had a Saturday morning kids cartoon. Yeah. Like, that just was media and uh, entertainment at that very specific moment in time. It's weird, but all not as weird as the connection between Bill Murray and Lorenzo Music. <laughs> yeah, for whatever reason. I mean, yeah, even Rick and Morty talked about this on one of their interdimensional cable episodes. But yeah, <laughs> very weird how Bill Murray was Peter Venkman in the movie, and then Lorenzo Music was Peter Venkman in the real Ghostbusters. And yet, Lorenzo Music was Garfield in the Garfield TV series. And then Bill Murray was Garfield in the movie. <laughs> like, what was that about? So was Bill Murray just trying to do a Lorenzo music voice for Garfield? No. I I, I don't know. <laughs> Weird. I'm, I recall reading a thing, too, that, like, maybe, like, from what I understand, maybe they didn't like each other somehow, but, and that might have been why Lorenzo music was only on the series, on the show for the first two seasons, mm-hmm. and it was Dave Coulier for the rest of the time. That's weird. Yeah. I don't know if I ever realized it was Dave Coulier. No, I... Yeah, I, I was... Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's, but also, I didn't realize that Arsenio Hall was, you know... Um, oh, uh, Winston was, Zedmore. Yeah, he was Winston Zedmore for the first three seasons as well. Like, that, he feels like he would have been too big of a name to be on this. Especially around that time. Yeah. Again, weird things can happen, and sometimes you get bigger voices for roles than uh, what you think they should rightfully be doing at that point. But, hey, Saturday morning cartoons, weird things can happen. Yes, also, in classic, you know, late 80s, early 90s cartoon slash children's programming, the theme music was, well, well, the Ghostbusters theme was Ray Parker Jr., but, you know, for the TV series, all the music was by Haim Shaban and Shuki Levy. <laughs> of course. Free, uh, Power, Power Rangers. Rangers. Yeah. yeah. Which actually, on the Netflix series, The Toys That Made Us, they do talk about the Power Rangers. Oh, yeah. And how, like, Haim Shaban basically built a media empire on it. Yes. And then, you know, sold off the franchise, like, two or three times. Yeah. And he's just stupidly wealthy now. Yep. All because he was in Japan on whatever work or tour or something, saw the, you know, Kamen Rider type shows and got an idea. I was like, hey, wait a minute. We could do this in America. But yep. film it over here. Yeah. Anyways, but yeah. Real Ghostbusters. 
I don't know if it holds up. <laughs> I don't know if it would. Probably not. But, you know, it's... It's very much from that time. Yeah, it's it's a fun chance for us to always... Like, whenever some of these things come up, it, you know, it, it's fun to just talk about how, like, what a weird time the late 80s and early 90s were around media like that. Like, you don't see that anymore, necessarily, where, like, no. every movie that could have been a kid's movie gets a TV series, like... Or have some sort of producer try and contort the franchise and the property into some sort of unnatural way to make it kid-friendly, like Rambo. <laughs> yes, or Tales from the Crypt Keeper. Tales from the Crypt, yeah. Police Academy. <laughs> Although, I mean, it was a silly comedy franchise, so it could work better than other things like yeah. Rambo or Tales from the Crypt. But, uh, you know, those were animated series. Yeah. If you want to talk about very weird things, perhaps uh, from that time that were live-action... Also debuting the same day as the real Ghostbusters was a live action series that uh, has become indelibly uh, etched as an 80s TV show and an 80s phenomena. It was Pee Wee's Playhouse. Yeah, so I, like, I'll admit, I didn't really watch it as much when I was a kid. It felt, you know, for some reason, it, whenever I would watch it, I would get almost kind of like, like, Mr. Rogers or whatever kind of vibes. And I think by the time I was old enough to realize, I'm like, ah, I already have some shows like this. And this is just like, I don't get it. Like mm-hmm. some of it just goes over my head because I'm too young. You know, and by the time it was already all said and done, like I was like seven years old, six, seven years old by the time it went out of main production. But looking back, it's kind of crazy when you look at, like, the careers that were launched from this TV series. Yes, and also the fact that this even became a TV series, considering the origins of the character, uh, that it was a character started by Paul Rubens, uh, just when he was still coming up as a comic, I think, uh, in L.A., at uh, working for improv troops or whatnot, and it's just the character of Pee Wee Herman is one he developed and did during improv shows and uh, comedic performances that was very not kid-friendly. Yeah. Like, this show, in hindsight, well, obviously I didn't get it when I was a kid. In many ways, it was basically making fun of kids' shows. Yeah. Like, it was a kids' show that was making fun of kids' shows and also, I don't want to say inflicting, but basically introducing kids to abstract art in a very, like, in many different ways. And, like, surrealism and absurdism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, like the characters were crazy. And, like, the people who would play the characters were, like, you look at them now, you're like, oh, those are huge or legendary names. Phil Hartman, Lawrence Fishburne, like, they, you know, were both on this. And, and then, you know, it's even looking through the Wikipedia page for, like, people who were involved with, you know either incidental or otherwise music for the show, the main composer for the opening and ending theme was Mark Mothersbaugh, you know, of Devo, who, you know, he, uh, you know... He's gone on to a hugely successful career in uh, film composition and uh, musical scoring. Yeah, I mean, he also was doing a lot of, like, children's-related stuff at the time as well, like Rugrats theme or whatever else. But yeah, you look at other composers who did, like, incidental music... None of them would be what I would consider straight ahead, like, people who, like, write music that, like, you know, you would ever really hear a lot of on the radio. 
The Residents, Danny Elfman, like Todd Rundgren. A young Danny Elfman still at that point. Yeah, but The Residents, if you've ever, like, The Residents are a bizarre concept to look into. If you've never heard of The Residents, they, their music is very weird. They've had a consistent kind of like, no one really knows who they are, and they've been around for like 50 years. <laughs> And like they do performances and stuff, but they always have like, it, it's a, there's a theory that like, you know, they're like actually a collective of like 75 people or something. But mm-hmm. anyways, they were, they're all their weird abstract music. They did some stuff for the show. And then we just said, uh, Danny Elfman, Todd Rundgren did some stuff. George Clinton, who, you know, who has done a lot of, you know, also film and television stuff, did a bunch of stuff on this show. George Clinton as in one of the masters of funk? Yes. Like as in, you know, the, the leader of parliament and or P-Funk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dweezil Zappa, Jeff Skunk Baxter, who was a session musician, best known as the guitarist of the Doobie Brothers and an early on a guitarist of Steely Dan. Nice. <laughs> Van Dyke Parks, another person. You know, who you might know as the guy who collaborated a lot with Brian Wilson in the 60s, who helped him write a lot of Smile. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, th- those are just to name a few. I mean, like, there's a lot of other ones in here, but yeah. The bananas. And yeah. <laughs> just so many weird stuff in this show. Like, like, as I said, like, Phil Hartman was Captain Carl. Lawrence Fishburne was Cowboy Curtis. Uh, yeah, and like, it, it very much like, well, yeah, and then other weird puppets and stuff like Jombie and, you know. Well, I mean, Jombie wasn't so much a puppet. He was just a head. Yeah. He, he was the, uh, the, the, the genie. The face genie, yeah. Yeah. But even, you know, the talking chair, like, you mentioned it, it felt like it was making fun of kid shows. By just taking everything, anthropomorphizing it, and turning it all up to 11. Yeah. Like, the world of Pee-wee's Playhouse was just dialed up to 11. Yeah. There was no calm and no chill about the show whatsoever. Yeah. So, and even, you know, going through the Wikipedia page for Pee-wee's Playhouse, you look at all the names involved, and it's like, what? (laughs) So... They say here, you know, under the cast and crew section, many now well-known TV and film actors appeared on the show, including Sandra Bernhardt, as I mentioned, Lawrence Fishburne, Phil Hartman, Natasha Leone, uh, Essipatha Murkison, Jimmy Smits, and Lynn Stewart, and then future heavy metal musician and filmmaker Rob Zombie was a production assistant, and future filmmaker John Singleton was a security guard. Huh. And then, yeah, it gets crazier. If you've, I mean, if you've never watched the show, it's worth watching clips. Like, it's very, it's weird. Yes. It's a weird show. But season three, which was only three episodes long, included an all-star Christmas special uh, featuring uh, the regular cast with appearances by Annette Funicello, Frankie Avalon, Magic Screen's cousin played by Magic Johnson, <laughs> Dinah Shore, Joan Rivers, Zsa Gabor, Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, Little Richard, Cher, Sharo, Katie Lang, the Del Rubio triplets, and Grace Jones. So, like, a who's who of, like, everyone in the 1980s, pretty much. <laughs> like, that's, wow. That's that. Like, on a kid's Christmas special. Yeah. 
I don't think kids would have even really appreciated who, like, 80% of those people are. Not a hope in hell. Like... When you've got a Net Funicello and Frankie Avalon... Yeah. ...who are, like, 50s, you know, beach movie darlings... Yeah, well, Annette Funicello, wasn't she one of the original, like... Mouseketeers. Mouseketeers. Yeah. So... <laughs> I think in the 50s and in the 60s, it was her and Frankie Avalon as, like, you know, the you know main leads for a lot of beach movies uh, at the time. Just, like, surfing at the beach, you know, good, wholesome family fun. Yeah. But, wow. Yeah. So, bananas. Like, so, ultimately, like, a weird show that I don't know how it got made. That's a good question. And, and I don't know if there's been a good answer. Yeah. I was too young for it. I mean, I know people who had older siblings, I think. It often happened when, like, the older siblings were into a thing. They would kind of, like, really encourage their younger siblings to also get into it. Like, I don't know if that happened with you or not. Uh, my sister didn't really watch it so much. I recall trying to watch Pee-wee's Playhouse on TV. I know some of the American networks we got aired it uh, on Saturday mornings. I found it hard to get into because yeah. everything was so dialed up. Yeah. Like, it, it was, it's an unrelenting show. Yeah, like, it's very overwhelming. Like, I know now as an adult, looking back, that that was part of the joke. Mm -hmm. But as a child, like, it's just like, I just don't understand what's happening. Yeah. Like, there's too much and I don't, like, well, granted, like, you and I, like, <laughs> by the end of the 80s, we were only like six years old, so like. True fact. <laughs> so there's that, but yeah. But yeah, I, I think it was probably meant for people who were more like, you know, maybe into their teens. Maybe even t early twenties. Yeah. Like, uh, early, uh, you know, just maybe starting college or university or something, uh, and just, uh, enjoying it and could see what it was doing. Yeah. You could see and understand and appreciate what it was going for. Oh, God. I'm even reminded now of the uh, moments when they'd have uh, someone uh, inadvertently say the word of the day and just the chaos that would erupt on screen, too. Just yeah. immediately afterward. Yep. You know, just everyone, Pee-wee, uh, any sort of other character, uh, the puppets would just all have a giant freak out on the screen when someone would mention the word of the day. <laughs> Which, again, is, you know, just... A joke and basically in joke at what, uh, you know, other kids programs would do to try and teach and educate kids. You know, oh, the word of the day we're going to learn about is giraffe. And then if someone said it on Pee Wee Herman, then just the whole scene would just freak the F out. So, uh, yeah, Pee Wee's Playhouse, uh, which then spawned some movies, which then helped launch the career of Tim Burton because Tim Burton, I think, directed one of the, uh, directed the first Pee Wee Herman, like Pee Wee's Playhouse movie. Yep. And if not the second one, uh, and then that helped get him started on the road of directing and somehow got him eventually Batman, uh, yep. amongst other movies, Edward Scissorhands in a whole filmography, uh, an iconic filmography. Yeah. And arguably every single one of his movies kind of went on to be iconic in some sort of way. True. Uh, and I know there was, uh, there was at least one more recent, uh, Pee Wee Herman movie done for Netflix. I think Judd Apatow directed it. I have not watched it, but the character has, uh, had spurts of, uh, appearances here and there through the years. So yeah, but, uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, one of those very weird time capsule of the era moments. Uh, but we have one more very of the era moments to talk about with our third show. We are, we are going to vet. It debuted on September 14th, 1991. 
And when we say of things that are very of the era, there might be something about the presentation, perhaps a, a style that makes them of the era, or may, some sort of a reference that makes them of the era, or they could also be of the era of because of the people they are involved, uh, yeah. that are involved. And in this show, three uh, the three main characters were all very much of the era athletes because they were the top athletes in all of North American professional sports, if not worldwide sports at the time. We are going to talk about the show Pro Stars. Yeah, so this is a show that there is a very good chance, even if you're around our age, that you wouldn't have caught. Like, you had to basically be a person like Mike the Legend or myself who would have been watching the inordinate amount of television that both of us watched. Oh, yeah, no, I was, uh, when I was a kid growing up, my parents would often say, like, hey, you know, don't, aren't you tired of just watching TV? Nope. Yeah, same. <laughs> don't you want to go outside? Nope. It's like, no, but this show's on. I want to watch this show. No. And, and if you were, like, you know, sort of, like, into some sports a little bit, which, you know, a lot of kids at that age, like, it was hard not to be because sports were built up in such a way you know, in your that, parents probably signed you up for something. Yeah, you you were either like you know in what like I don't know I I played all the different sports when I was mm-hmm. a kid. I played hockey. You know, I I, play, I used to play baseball. I played a little bit of baseball. I played a little bit of soccer. And you know that's the whole thing. Like you know until you you know are old enough to have your own interests, and <laughs> these are the things that are kind of foisted on you. <laughs> so that just sort of happened. But you know, as such, you know you you look to like you know the major sports stars of the time, sort of as role models and. You, arguably, there was no one more famous at the time than Michael Jordan. True. Like, he was one of the most famous people in the world. And, you know, just because basketball was such a ma- major phenomenon. And then, you know, from there, Bo Jackson was also very popular, even though it's very easy for people to not remember who he was. There's a very good documentary, actually, um, about oh, uh, him. Oh, 30 for 30. Yeah. Just... Just to kind of like watch, if you don't remember who Bo Jackson was, he was basically a huge part of culture for a very short period of time, and then that was it. Yeah. And then of the rounding out the rest of the pro stars, Wayne Gretzky, still arguably one of the best hockey players of all time. Who still at that time, uh, his celebrity status actually likely increased given the fact he was traded to the LA Kings. Yeah. And was there in the media capital that was Los Angeles and Hollywood. Yep. So, he's a big name. Wayne Gretzky in his heyday hosted SNL. Yeah. Just, like, just think of... Because of his celebrity status as a hockey player. Like, think about that now, though. Can you think of a single NHL hockey player who would maybe be suitable to do that? Hard to. Yeah. Like, who would have the personality that would uh, make them a good host, but also the talent level... That makes them one of the top players in the league, as Wayne Gretzky was in that time. I mean, not a fair comparison. Wayne Gretzky will be one of the best, basically is one of the best to ever play hockey. Yeah. Um, so anyone now may not be as good, but still. So you need the talent level and also a personality, and there's no one with that. Yeah, and it's just... And the notoriety. Yeah, the notoriety as well. I mean, and that's the thing about all of these characters who are on the show, but ba- basically without... Without, you know, going into the specifics of who these people were too much, this was a very 90s show, a very strange show that would never exist now. Not a hope in hell. Because it, just everything about this show is, is like screams, oh, 
I'm from the early 90s. <laughs> so the conceit of the show is that uh, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and Bo Jackson are all friends, and they work for, or they're all part of some, I guess, agency that uh, basically saves and rescues people, and they're... I guess, uh, person at the chair who's in the uh, control room when they're off on missions or something, uh, is, uh, some older white woman named Granny? Or, or was uh, or it some mom? Sort of, I think or it was mom. mom. Is it mom? Yeah. Yeah. But basically an older mom, elderly type female figure who was also their version of Q from yeah. the James Bond franchise who would make and develop new gadgets for them that they could use on their missions, uh, to, to help them do whatever. Yeah, so as as Wikipedia points out here, um, when they list the characters, I mean, Michael Jordan, voice, voice not... The, the other thing is they're not voiced by themselves no. either. They're voiced by other people because they would never, you know, stoop to doing this, basically. <laughs> they probably just licensed their name out and that was it. Um, but, you know, Michael Jordan is the leader of the troupe. He's exceptionally smart and talented with complicated contraptions and encourages children to study mathematics and science, as Michael Jordan, I'm sure, <laughs> Did all the time. Did all the time, yeah. Uh, Wayne Gretzky typically played the role of comic relief, inexplicably, his <laughs> mind is always on food. So, like, that's the other thing. Like, oh, And then finally, Bo Jackson provides the proverbial muscle for the heroes. He's immensely strong and has a bit of a mean streak. His strength often approaches superhuman levels, such as in the series opening when he uses a gigantic tree trunk like a club against a logging robot. That's another thing about early 90s, late 80s cartoons. Every, like, whenever they had a one of these shows that was about a group of people, there were always, like, very clearly defined like tropes that each character had to fall into. You had to have a leader who was the smart one. Mm-hmm. You had to have a goofy one who always, or like, you know. The comic relief. The comic relief guy. There always had to be like someone who is obsessed with food and that would often go with the comic relief thing. Like look at Ninja Turtles. Yep. That was Michelangelo. Know, Michelangelo. You always need, and again, Ninja Turtles was, uh, you know, Leonardo was the one who was, uh. The leader. The leader. Uh, and smart and whatever else. And, and then, smart. Donatello was Donatello also smart. Donatello was also he smart. He was the nerd. Yeah. And then, you know, you had someone who had a mean streak who was, you know, strong. Raphael. Yep. You know. Uh, but yeah, that, that's just an interesting observation. But also, like, yeah. Bo Jackson was a bananas human being. Oh, he was a ridiculous athlete. Yeah. Like, maybe one of the best athletes of all time whose career is cut bananas short, tragically. With one of the most horrible injuries. Yeah. That, one of the most horrible, not obvious injuries. Yeah. And it, an injury that was caused because of how strong he was, which is the other crazy thing. Who knew it was a bad idea to carry like six guys, six linebackers with you as you're running down the field in a football game? Yeah, it's not like it would just like, you know, completely tear your leg out of its socket or anything, huh? Which will require like, you know, years and years of like physiotherapy and re- reconstructive surgeries and stuff. And we'll just effectively end your career in two professional sports. Which also, he was in, he was a professional at two, in two different sports. At the same time. And an all-star in both sports. Yes, he was. Which is insane. He was an outfielder for the Kansas City Royals and also a running back for the Oakland Raiders. Yes. Uh, which at that time, they may have been the LA Raiders. Yeah, I think they were the LA Raiders, but yeah. The Raiders. The Raiders. So, yeah. In case you're wondering who this Bo Jackson is that we're talking about. Um, but anyways, yeah. And then, uh, then on Wikipedia, they list mom, 
uh, a quasi-Yiddish and Jewish mother stereotype. She is the cue to the pro stars James Bond. She constantly invents wacky gadgets loosely based on sports equipment for the heroes to use. And all their free time in mom's gym and possibly live there as well. It also serves as the pro stars headquarters. And then, you know, there's a couple of other people as well. Mom has an assistant who's like an attractive young woman. Uh, there's the neighbor who's uh, a hapless. Well, it, this is, I'm reading from Wikipedia. It's written hapless African American man who wears glasses and happens to live in the same neighborhood as the Pro Stars headquarters. By sheer misfortune, he happens to fall victim to the malfunctions of the Pro Stars machines, such as where he's buried in snow after their climate change or their climate machine goes awry. Another episode, he's taken to a vacation to the Himalayas and he enjoys the isolation and confidence that he is far away from any mishaps the Pro Stars could unleash, only to find the Pro Stars are also in the area stopping a villain there. You know, because that, they were heroes. Yeah. So that that whole thing, you know, <laughs> that they get into. But yeah, it, it's basically like there's these people who are popular. How can we further capitalize on them? You know how I mentioned earlier that uh, producers would try and contort a franchise into unnatural forms to try and make it work for kids? Sometimes you could do that with just personalities as well. Yeah, like... All of, like, the things that they were doing, like, they were basically superheroes on yep. this show, and, like, everything they would do would basically just be around the sport that they played. So, like, whenever Wayne Gretzky had to try to stop someone, he would, like, shoot some sort of explosive thing from some sort of hockey stick type thing, like, some explosive puck type thing at a guy, and it would just, oh, there he stopped him, or, oh, I'm I'm shooting this thing that's gonna, you know, cause a net to appear over a doorway, or mm-hmm. I'm... I'm shooting this thing that will you know, make some ice appear underneath you so you slip. Same thing with Michael Jordan. Like, oh, he's going to, you know, he'll jump up really high and stop an airplane or he'll jump up really high and do this because he was known for dunking. And Bo Jackson, would well, he was just really strong. He could just bulldoze could, right ahead. Yeah, exactly. Go so through like, walls. <laughs> yeah. So I distinctly remember in one episode, I think uh, Wayne Gretzky, he was chasing after a villain on the show Pro Stars, not in real life. Uh, <laughs> he was chasing after a villain, and uh, he kind of was about to slip and fall down, and he activated his elbow pad, and it turned into like an inflatable crash pad underneath him. <laughs> yeah. And he somehow was able to like launch, uh, you know, like you said, explosive pucks, different kinds of pucks from his hockey stick. Yeah. Because, you know, the elderly, you know, matronly figure, mom, was uh, there just developing new gadgets. Also, this seemed like one giant commercial for the cereal that was <laughs> available in grocery stores at the same time, also called Pro Stars, also featuring Wayne Gretzky, Bo Jackson, and, and Michael Jordan on the cover, on yeah. the box. So I don't know if they were actually good, but I remember loving the cereal when it was available. <laughs> And from what I recall, they were basically just alphabets that were all just the same shape. Yeah, they were all stars. Yeah. But they were, like, no different than alphabets. But they had celebrity athletes on the box. Yeah. Yeah, and because, you know, I was a Canadian kid, I loved Wayne Gretzky, and I thought Michael Jordan was cool, and, like, you know, Bo Jackson was, you know, on the rise at the time. Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm all in on pro stars. <laughs> Yep, and uh, I think it was at the end, either of the theme song or just at the end of every episode, they'd uh, punctuate it. Oh, yeah, because it had, like, the the jazzy rock intro theme song to the show, Pro Stars, as well, that basically told you everything you needed to know. Yeah. 
And I think they ended the theme song with uh, Pro Stars. It's all about helping kids. Yeah, I, that was like said by Michael Jordan's character. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and again, there was another thing that was also very 90s as well. They had like the PSA moment where, you know, you would get like Michael Jordan, like the real Michael Jordan or the real Bo Jackson or the real Wayne Gretzky in some live action segment basically talking about like how stealing was wrong or how, you know, smoking's bad smoking's or something bad like or that. whatever kind of, you know, BS things that they would always try to shoehorn in as well for kids at the time. Uh, very 90s thing. I don't think they do that anymore either. No, I think I think kids are perhaps a bit more jaded and cynical than to be taking these uh, life lessons, these stilted PSA-type life lessons from uh, celebrities in their animated programming. Yeah. But yeah, Pro Stars debuted on September 14th, 1991, very 90s. Uh, and prior to that, we talked about uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse and the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Both of those programs debuted on September 13th, 1986. Saturday morning television was a hell of a different time back then. Yep, I don't sure even was. know if uh, Saturday morning is really just a dedicated programming block geared towards kids anymore. I don't even know if Saturday mornings exist anymore. <laughs> oh, they exist. Trust me. <laughs> I wake up and it's afternoon all the time. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> well, you go to bed very late then, my friend. <laughs> I'm not arguing that point whatsoever. <laughs> but oh, uh, in the meantime, we hope you enjoyed our very expanded discussion on uh, 90s related programming, as well as uh, many things we had to say about uh, NFTs and uh, Star Citizen at the top of the show uh, roughly two hours ago here, as uh, we're now finally concluding this program and just want to say thank you so much for joining us, uh, either sticking through us uh, straight through, or you've broken this uh, particular episode up into multiple listens. Uh, however you did it, we appreciate it, and hope you can join us again next time. In the meantime, if you haven't done so already, subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Podcasts. Uh, direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of the Arcade Show dot com. And if you have any ideas about how we here at the Arcade can get in on those sweet, sweet NFT trends uh, or some of the popular bubbles trends that are happening so we can uh, go in get ours you know and share and be charitable with some of our our take home as well uh let us know you can email us info at the arcade show.com or hit us up on social media we're on twitter we're on facebook at the arcade show on both those platforms so uh until next time good night everybody good night (laughs) 